0: What's up, Rebels? Welcome to Rebel Radio, your weekly show about low expectations. When I say low expectations, I'm not talking about our guests. Our guests are amazing. I'm talking about me. Just don't expect too much and you might be happy. So check it out. Rebel Radio is now available on dashradio.com on the hot button channel. You can also subscribe on iTunes, on SoundCloud at soundcloud.com slash rebel underscore radio. My guest today is... Oliver Wang, he's a DJ, college professor, journalist, blogger, man of many words, and he's got a new book called Legions of Boom, Filipino Mobile DJ Crews in the Bay Area. And uh, it's fascinating if you are into the scratch DJ scene at all, this is where it all started going back into the 80s when uh, a lot of these guys were just kids coming up and and finding their way as DJ Crews. Turns out Oliver and I met back in 1995. I was a judge at the DMC DJ Championships, and he was sitting in the same room. Um, and we, we talk about some interesting stories from the book about how some of those guys got started. And uh, we also explore why the business side of music is not always bad. It tends to get a bad rap whenever we're talking about it. But I guess the reason we, we all know about hip-hop is because somebody turned it into a business. So Oliver's going to tell us about that. Before we do, though, let's get into the EDM.com track of the week. This week's track is from Gallant. The track's called Weight in Gold. And uh, I think you're going to like it. It's a sexy R&B number, so let's check it out now.
1: Bricks on my shoulders. This gravity hurts when you know the truth.
2: I'm pulling my way.
0: was Gallant with Weight in Gold. You can find that on EDM.com on the Lavish channel. If you liked it, check out the Lavish channel. There's, there's all kind of music on there that you will probably like as well. So now let's get into my interview with Oliver Wang. College professor. Yes. Uh, music journalist. <laughs> yes. Crate digger. Yes. Author, <laughs> DJ, podcaster, blogger. Yeah, uh, I'm rena- short
2: attention span I think is the gist of it,
0: yeah. Renaissance man. I like to say,
2: uh, I was you know as I was saying earlier to, to someone you know it's we're all we all are slash something multiple slashes yeah, yeah. we're the slash generation. So, absolutely yeah. well welcome thank you thank thanks you for, for having me to
0: do it's, this it's good to see you Uh so Oliver is uh, the author of Legions of Boom
2: chronic American DJs mobile DJ crews of the San Francisco Bay Area
0: yeah this is so uh I want to talk about so I want to talk about this book this yeah. is, this book is. Fascinating. I'm glad you like it. I, um, yeah, I read it. What well, does she think it's fascinating? <laughs> <laughs> I read it last week, and I, I, I got to say, I mean, I, I love uh, DJs, and I'm from the Bay Area, and I didn't expect to like this as much as I did. Um, and so, you know, I want to, I want to dig into to some stuff from the book. Yeah, please. But why, why'd you write it?
2: I mean, there's the the easy answer would be. I am a, you know, as you mentioned before, my day job is as a college professor and as part of my obligations to the profession, I have to occasionally turn out, you know, mm-hmm. publications. Sure. And so this fulfills part of that. But I think the more personal explanation is, you know, I I got turned on to this story partially because in the uh, mid-1990s, uh, before I, I even started uh, graduate school, I was uh, a, a music writer and I was writing about uh, specifically, hip hop a lot, uh, and uh, you know, including for Herb Magazine, which is how me and Josh first got to know each other way back when. And when I began talking to the turntablists who were in the Bay Area at the time, and so these are people who you know, world famous DJs like Hubert, Shortcut, Mixmaster Mike, Apollo, etc. The one th- common uh, you know link between all of their various origin stories, uh, besides the fact that they're all Filipino American and from the Bay Area, which is notable enough is they all got started uh, in different mobile crews. And I'd already known a little bit about the scratch scene, but I had never heard anything about the mobile DJ scene. And the more that I dug into it, the more I realized here was this entire massive scene that you know extended the duration of the 1980s um, that involved hundreds of crews, thousands of young people across the Bay Area. And no one had really reported or written anything about it outside of maybe, I think Davey D was the only person I could find (laughs) at the time. Um, and as both a journalist and as a scholar, by the time I, was, I started thinking about pursuing this as a you know as a book length project, it would have been in the late '90s, early 2000s. Um, it just seemed like it was a good story to, to chase after, and so mm-hmm. both as a dissertation, which is what it, this book originally began as, but really just as a way of, of telling a history that I think very few people outside of the scene had any awareness of. Um, and I think that was the main thing that compelled me toward it is this idea that a generation of high school teenagers created a party scene that they dominated and they ran for ten plus years. Um, that in you know, and I don't want to suggest that them giving birth to the turntablist scene is their most important legacy because I think it kind of reduces the accomplishments of what the scene did in and of itself. Mm-hmm. But that's certainly also a linkage of how we understand the present day. World of DJing, how it links back to sort of what was happening in the Bay Area of the 1980s.
0: Sure. Yeah. I mean, I, that's one thing that stood out to me is that for as, as rich uh, stories there were in the book, it probably wouldn't have happened if it were not for Kubert and Apollo.
2: Which like, part, the, in the, terms the, of
0: the, like, this probably wouldn't be a book that has the kind of uh, cultural relevance.
2: Yeah, I mean, I think to the extent that anyone is aware of there being sort of, that that being Filipino and being a DJ is a thing, certainly (laughs) it links back to the success that people like Q and Mike and Apollo and Short and Babu and, I mean different Filipino DJs from across not just the US and California but really the world at this point. A lot of it links back to sort of Q, you know, winning the DMC back in I guess, what was it 1990 or 91 at this point and sort of putting the the Bay Area and putting Filipino DJs on the map and he, him becoming this massive inspiration to future generations. So I I think certainly to the extent that people are interested in that wider story, it links back to him. But as I try to point out in the book, even he had gotten his start and he was inspired by a previous generation of Filipino American DJs, you know, folks in Spintronics, folks in Ultimate Creations. I mean, all these crews that people outside of the Bay have never heard of, but for a young Cubert attending Balboa High School in the early 1980s, like those were the gods, you know, from his childhood in, in essence.
0: explain for us why why there are so many filipino djs (laughs) you have to read the book no um
2: I mean, partly. God, where to, where to begin with that? I think part of it is so in the Bay Area, right? You have this critical mass of Filipino American family settlements that begins in the nineteen seventies and throughout the, throughout the nineteen eighties. And so, in cities like Daly City, it's, it's the best known, but also places in San Jose, places in Union City, Freeman, up in Vallejo. Um, you have you know thousands, tens of thousands of Filipino American families settling. Um, in these suburban places during the course of the 1970s. So their children come of age by the 1980s. uh, And these are, you know, schools and neighborhoods in which they are, if not the, you know, literal demographic dominant group, they're sizable, right? And uh, in the late 1970s, partly because of the explosion of interest in DJing, thanks to things like the, you know, interest in disco, Mm. um, you have these, Young teenagers, they're in high school, they're sneaking up into San Francisco on weekends, sneaking into um, nightclubs up, up there like Studio West, and they're watching these tech DJs uh, do their thing with what back then was called nonstop disco mixing, which we, these days we just take for granted as that's just how DJs DJ. You, it's, every segue is seamless, right? But that was an innovation. That was something that that, that had to be invented and, and popularized throughout the course of the 70s. And so by the time these these kids come into contact with it in the late 80s, it really blows their mind because it really puts the DJ into this position of power where they control the flow and the energy of the crowd throughout the course of the evening. And so what what they take inspiration from is that experience in the nightclub and their innovation lies in how can we, translate that experience back to our suburban spaces. So, In other words, how do we take what we see, the light show, the sound of Studio West, the mixing styles, how do we bring that back to, let's say, a Daily City or a Union City? And how do we duplicate it in someone's garage or in a school gymnasium or in a church hall? And that's how the mobile scene really takes off initially, is these kids wanting to create the same kind of nightclub experience, but back in their own neighborhoods using the whatever means possible they can figure out. And a lot of this is you know, this is way before DJ specialty stores and mm-hmm. and websites exist, obviously. So they're just DIYing everything. You know, they're learning how to make their own lighting stands. And they're stealing uh, sirens, you know, lighting sirens off of, uh, you know, ambulances as a way to have a light show. Um, they're creating their own fog machines. All of a way, all as a way of showing them and their friends in high school how to have a good time, basically. Right. Yeah. Um, so that's part of the story. The other part of it, how does the scene grow to the size it becomes? This goes back to those Filipino American families, most of whom, and the ones who are whose kids become these DJs, they're middle class. That means they have the kind of, you know, excess income to be able to loan out to their kids to be able to buy the equipment, to buy records, um, and more importantly, these are you know this is an immigrant community in which extended family networks are really important, in which community groups and church groups and student groups in colleges and high schools are really important to connect to keep Filipino Americans connected to one another. So, if you are a young crew and you need to get gigs because that's how you make your money, you plug into that existing network and mm-hmm. you do your cousin's cousin's you know birthday party, or you do your aunt's wedding, or you do you know your local high school's Filipino club school dance. Um, and it's the strength of that network which allows the scene to blossom because it's able to circulate gigs to all of these new crews that start popping up out of the woodwork throughout
0: the course of the eighties. Yeah, one of the things you talk about in the book that I found interesting uh well you know I think about it a lot but I don't I'm not as smart as you so I um I'm but not that smart, but okay. <laughs> well you know but you 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 um well I, I want to talk about that separately because I think yeah. there's something really interesting to being an academic into hip-hop I know you're not just into hip-hop but you you sort of come up out of that tradition and um you know and, and Jeff Chang Right, Huge influence on me, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely, and on me as well. Jeff, uh, I think I worked for Jeff for about three days at Herb in the first. (laughs) So my first day at Herb as an associate (laughs) editor after I graduated uh, was Jason Bentley's last day. Okay.
2: I didn't even realize Bentley was at Herb. Okay, so see. Yeah,
0: yeah, he was there. He was some kind of editor position. He was literally just leaving maybe to go to kcrw full-time or mm, i'm mm, not sure mm. and then or Kwango, i f- i lost some of the history there but uh and then jeff was there and he was leaving i actually filled his role so he trained me for like a week before i i didn't, uh, I didn't
2: realize that because jeff is basically who brought me into herb at the time to work with oh god was it t love was T Love? I think was, was editing the hip hop single section. This was this would have been around ninety four ninety five. Yeah, and so Jeff basically gave my contact to T Love, and that's how I started at Herb, and I eventually took over T Love's position. And when I was an editor um, there for however many years and, and
0: through the the early mid two uh, thousands, so yeah. Well, all right, let's shift gears and talk about that because that seems more interesting. But <laughs> you know. I wonder, so I have this feeling that um, journalism and, and music journalism is important to culture. Okay. Right? That there's an important... Hopefully, yeah. Well, you know, there's a lot of crap journalism, just like there's a lot of crap sure. music. Sure, Um But that, you know, a strong critical voice to help guide a scene, you know, you talk a lot about this sort of scene-based movement mm-hmm. uh, in the book. Right, that that that's an important voice, and you know when we, guys of a certain age, sort of remember when, the magazine of of record told you to buy this thing and not that, and yeah. you know check for this DJ and not that, and, yeah, right, and and I feel like that's missing today, and I and I feel like, uh, that that consumers fans are sort of worse off for not having that.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: I mean, I hear where you're coming from. And I think for me, whenever
2: this question arises, I'm always a little bit hesitant to pass judgment only because even as sort of this, these different scenes have changed, like I'm older too. And sort of my investment in trying to stay on top of everything 24 seven is very different now that I'm in my you know early forties versus when I was in my early twenties. Right. Mm-hmm. And so even though I do think, I mean, the, the agreement that I have with you here is that there is less of a filter between what music gets made and how listeners receive it, right? And it used to be that a magazine like an herb or like a source or whatever, they were that intermediary to help filter through, well, here's all the music that's out here, but here's what you really should be listening to, right? Yeah. It was, I mean, I fucking hate this term. I hope it's okay that I'm swearing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But, you know, we... The word curation gets way overused and abused these <laughs> right. days. But Absolutely. if I'm I'm just gonna invoke and just to say that part of what journalism and criticism can function as is sort of this curatorial impulse, which is we're gonna take the, you know, a thousand different things that you could be listening to and recommend ten out of that. And I do think that what's shifted is that it's not necessarily that that curation element's disappeared. It's rather there's like a, a 10,000 curators now, and they right. all have their own listicles of things that you sure. should be listening to. Um, I don't know. whether the Whether the consumer, whether the listener is worse off for it, it's sort of hard to say because I think the other difference now is that if I wanted to know what the new... Whatever album sounded like back in the day, I sort of needed a magazine to first listen to it for me because they would get the advance and they had, right. had a chance to listen mm-hmm. yeah. to it. These days, I can just go to Spotify. I can go to YouTube. Yeah. So I don't really need the intermediary to have access because that access has been already advanced to me mm-hmm. uh, You know, without requiring sort of someone in between to, to sit there. Um, So then I can make the judgment for myself. So if, you know, whoever the new, you know, if we're talking, let's say, some new Flying Lotus album, chances are that's going to be streaming in full a week before its quote-unquote release date because release dates are kind of meaningless these days anyways. And I don't know if the listener is worse off for having that direct access to it without requiring someone like me as the critic to basically sit between the two of us and say, well, yeah, you should listen to it. Um, I mean, I still love writing criticism. I still feel like there's a function to it, which is that filtering aspect. But, again, I don't know if, as a whole, a listener is worse off because we don't have that same kind of power that we had, let's say, 20 years ago.
0: Yeah, I just, I mean, I tend to believe that too much choice is not good. Okay. That some choice is good, Yeah, too much can be sort of debilitating, and that, um, you know, music, like many things, is is subjective. So what's good to me may not be good to you. And so, you know, I think... I don't know that we as a, as a general, that people in general are that good at sort of knowing what they like. Mm-hmm. Um, and so the radio has its system for getting people to decide what they like, which is play it over and over and over until you like it. Um, you know, and I think part of the music industry's system used to be that we go through this layer of media. Right so part of, part of what you're talking about is is we got the records early <coughs> as journalists because someone wanted us to right. get them early. Right. Right and and so I think the fact that everything just shows up on Spotify at once mm-hmm. sort of speaks to the diminished role of the critic in that because there's no label saying, no, I need the critics to hear it first and talk about it. Right. What about and the blogs?
1: Kind of I mean, like, Hypeum and those guys are putting what's trending. Yeah. So, like, I mean, I source so, my music that way. So what so they lack
0: is is a critical voice, right? So, But um, this
1: is, I mean, this is, you're saying it lacks a critical voice, but the mass people are saying that they like that song, so it rises to the top. So mm-hmm. it's almost like you can't argue that then because people like it. so
0: what happens is that when when a new superstar artist when katy perry makes a new single there are millions of people who've already decided they like that before they even heard it because they're katy perry fans and they want to hear it and so it's going to be number one on hype every single time
1: If if they cover katy perry okay
0: but so or whatever or you know when diplo makes a track it's going to be number one on Hypem always because it's a Diplo track. Now, you know, when the source got the, uh, the Public Enemy record and, uh, you know, they, I remember the source review, they called it, instead of Fear of a Black Planet, they called it Fear of a Whack Album. Now, there's a lot of us who might disagree, you know, but whatever. They caused a, an important dialogue within the community. Mm-hmm. about this record because they they stepped up and said it's not what we expected right. right and so the millions of kids who are who are clicking thumbs up or thumbs down or, or whatever on on Hype em or or any of these platforms are not they're just not giving it that critical thought which i'm not saying is all bad but i am saying that it's partly bad
2: i think you know th- Let's see a few thoughts here. One is that, on the one hand, I I get where you're coming from, and I think part of me certainly agrees with the fact that we're sort of been thrust into this kind of brave new world. We're all trying to make sense of it. At least the old fogies like me, you know, are still trying to make sense of it. And is there something lost? Yeah, probably. Right. Um, probably something gained too. I don't mean to kind mm-hmm. of equivocate about it, but I, I, I'm always I'm always trying to be self aware of of how in and out of touch i am within this mm-hmm. i do think it's interesting and i think partly my other thought here is as someone who as a scholar i'm interested in understanding phenomena regardless of my own personal feelings about it and also raising someone you know i have my daughter's now 10 years old and the the, the most powerful source in which she's learned about songs that she now loves and has learned to memorize was watching Pitch, Pitch Perfect. Oh, yeah. Oh, wow. You know, yeah. Not, and not on, not in the theaters. It was, we. I think we thought, maybe you'd like this, and we watched it on, maybe it was on cable or something. Um, but she has memorized basically every song off of that, that first soundtrack or that was in the movie. So she knows how to do, like, the opening Dr. Dre rhymes to, <laughs> um, to no, is it no diggity? Right, to no diggity. I this it kinda of blows my mind that her route into that is by watching the riff off in Pitch Perfect. So regardless of what I th- whether or not I, I think it would be more ideal for her to have heard it that way versus another way, for me again this is just me as a as a scholar and as an observer i just find that really interesting i don't know what to really make of it mm-hmm. but i think it's worth noting that these are increasingly the ways in which people learn about things it's through yeah. movie soundtracks. it's it's through that you know the the, the last song that, with which television shows feel like they have to play during a montage of emotional moments with right. the key characters yeah. sure. but I mean, I hate to admit it, I've learned about new songs because of that. I've learned about new songs watching commercials. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That's not the only way, but it right. is an increased way in which we're getting exposed to music. And again, whether regardless of my own personal take on it, I think it's sort of just an interesting way in which the distribution of how music flows to us has been changed and transformed over the years, in, in a very quick amount of time. I mean, really, 20 years ago, means may sound like a long time ago, but it, to me, it doesn't feel that long ago at yeah, all. And really, we're really, really, we're really talking about stuff that I think has flipped in really just ten years. Yeah. Um. So I don't know. I mean, again, Josh, it's it's I I totally hear what you're saying. Um. Do I think there's been something lost in that transformation? Sure. Yeah. But I also feel like I don't want to be the one to judge how today's young people engage with music in a way where when I was young, their age, I didn't want to be judged about how I was learning about stuff either. Of course. You know, yeah. um, like one one should never romanticize, I think, as you're pointing out, like list finding stuff to the radio, because radio has always been corrupted as a mm-hmm. medium to begin with. Right. So uh, again, it, I don't want to be a moral relativist about it either. Um, I guess the gist of what I'm trying to say is I don't know what to do with all of this.
0: Well, what do you see as different? So you talk in the book about this concept of music being connected to identity mm. and i know i know a lot of that is, is is racial and and cultural but but some of that you could also say is generational right and so i wonder yeah sure how you you know when you see your your students or your daughter like how do you think music plays into their identity differs from how it was for our generation.
2: I don't think it's very much different at all. I think that the way in which, I mean, the power of music, and it's something I, th- I think I mentioned in the book, is that, you know, it is both something that is both incredibly intimately personal, right? The the, the songs that we think are our songs, we hold to us Mm -hmm. as dear as anything else in our lives. But it also, and this is what makes music so powerful, it's both intimate yet incredibly social because it's how we define ourselves relative to one another. I identify with you because I like the same artists or the same songs that you do. I like the same genres as you do. That creates a community around itself. I don't think music... Music's power to do that has changed much at all. I think, you know, for my the for my students, for example, they're really into EDM. Mm-hmm. Now that's not a music that I personally identify with very much. Uh, maybe I just haven't given it a fair shake. I like sick <laughs> drops as much as the next guy as a DJ, I guess. But <clears throat> I recognize that for them attending something like the Electric Daisy Festival, which they do, that is part of their formation of how they have a sense of identity, and of group identity, in the same way that me going to hip hop in the park in Oakland back in the mid-90s. That was sort of my gesture of sort of identifying who I saw as my community. I don't think music's ever lost that that power. I think if there's a difference, it's that, you know, it used to, well, you know, we've gone from having, I don't know, a handful of major genres, right? You're a rock guy, you're a hip hop person, you are a jazz person, whatever. Um, and now you have all these atomized microgenres, where you can have subdivisions within subdivisions, and that becomes how you identify. So instead of having, you know, four or five major food groups, we now have, you know, a thousand small ones. Right. And so, the kind of community and group identity building ha- happens at a smaller scale, perhaps as a consequence. Mm-hmm. Maybe, maybe.
1: I saw one recently that was called French Israeli pop. I was like, See? what the heck is that? But I love the song, and I was going to call it electro-pop. Sure, <laughs> right. There are a lot.
0: Yeah, I mean, that's um, it's interesting because I think, you know, on some level there's always been sort of a resistance to these labels. Um, you know, the grunge guys started to hate the term grunge or right. alternative and, you know. Sure. Uh, just like kind of what's happening in the EDM space right now. Right, right. Uh, at the same time, the marketing machine sort of needs. Genres. These, right, Yeah.
2: right because Otherwise, they don't know how to, they marketing. want, you, yeah, yeah, exactly. Right. Yeah, I mean, genres have always existed primarily as a marketing tool rather than as a kind of an artistic kind of, you know, yeah, uh, as being, yeah, it, it, it's, it has more utility as a marketing tool than it indicates any kind of actual kind of artistic set of conventions, sure,
0: perhaps, absolutely. Um, so, talk about why the DJ is so important.
2: Oh God! You know, all these small questions. Um,
0: um, I mean, talk about why it's so important to, to, to what, you? like life to, no, to to you, to me.
2: I mean, there's a, a quote that I I always like citing um, in discussing the book, and this comes from Sarah Thornton, who is uh, a club culture scholar, and she writes about the DJ as the orchestrator of the of the or of a communal experience. And I mean, I think to me, right, as someone who not just writes about DJs but is a DJ you know, I just did a wedding in Little Rock uh, the other week. And so I, you know, I can, I experience this in a visceral way is that you are there to basically create this communal experience on the dance floor through your song selection, through your mixing styles. And that based on those decisions, you either lift up the moods of the crowd, you bring them down or you make them hate you or you make them love you depending on, you know, something as simple as how do I follow song A with song B? Mm -hmm. And I think that, Allure and that power is what draws people to DJing. Is the sense that you can have this incredible effect on a crowd of people through very little than just your taste in some ways, mm-hmm. right? And and it's certainly a level of skill along with that uh, as well. Um, but I think that in the ways in which people experience music on that visceral, physical, sonic level, DJs are this incredibly important, you know, mediator between. You know, again, to go back to the point we we're saying before, there's you know a billion songs you could choose from. The DJ is the one who sort of p- puts together that playlist mm-hmm. that he thinks or she thinks will lead a crowd or an audience through an emotional experience, you know, or a cerebral experience as a pro- as part of that process. Yeah. Um, you know, which, and I'm just thinking of this sort of off the top as a writer, it's sort of the same thing. You're taking a series of ideas and you're stringing them together in a way that you think will make it compelling to get people to think a way that you want them to think mm-hmm. or feel the way that you want them to feel. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think DJing is like a lot of things in which people are organizing a vast set of things into something that is, again, I hate this term, but I'm gonna use it again, into sort of a curated experience. And that experience is designed to elicit some kind of response from from an audience.
1: Mm-hmm. In studying uh, DJ culture, Uh, did you find any common characteristics amongst, like, the most successful DJs?
2: Hmm. Um, I don't know about common characteristics. I mean, I'm trying to think of the things that this particular community valued. And and so I'm talking specifically about, you know, Filipino-American mobile Mm -hmm. disc jockeys in the 80s. You know, a lot of it came down to not just about mixing skill, but also just presentation. Uh, one of the crews that, that that almost universally was seen as the best crew was this crew out of San Francisco called Ultimate Creations. And they partially forged a mystique around themselves because they had a really clean setup. Like they didn't let wires show, you know, mm. everything. They had a, a, they had a, they, they borrowed their color scheme from the Raiders. So everything was silver and black. So they made sure all of their equipment, their cases reflected that. And so they were just really well put together so that every time they performed, I mean basically they were they had great brand management yeah. before mm-hmm. that term ever existed. Right. And I think that was sort of an interesting thing for me to realize that it wasn't just because they had the best DJs and that was certainly they had a great DJ in this guy, Genie G, but it was also just the fact that they put themselves out there in the way that other crews looked at them in awe and like, Oh, I didn't realize that was possible yeah, yeah. to be that professional, to sort of put yourself across like that. Um, so, again, I don't know how applicable that is to sort of other examples. But to me, that's sort of an, an, a striking example of what what it was that, that they valued at that point mm-hmm. was it wasn't just again, it wasn't just about the music it was also about how did you present yourself as a crew? Right.
1: Yeah, yeah. I see that. I mean, Deadmau5 does that right with his helmet. And right. I'm sure there's, you know, DJ Newmark and his whole toy setup.
2: Right, Right. There is something to be to having an identity that people right. can instantly see on a visual level beyond just the sonic aspect and i'd be able to identify that okay we know what we're getting and there's there's something comforting in that to a certain extent um you know i think partly what you see in this scene too is also um you know beyond the basics of of song selection it's always kind of pushing the boundaries of, of style too and so the things that they they kind of uh, latched onto was quick mixing for example so the idea that you could whittle through you know stacks of records on both sides of the turntables and you were switching up songs every I don't know two three four bars but always keeping it on tempo that Mm -hmm. was sort of a demonstration of skill Mm. that um, you know I don't think it's well in the Serato age that's not difficult to do from a technical point of view that's actually really easy to do but back when you were working with analog media that was actually something that it was a skill set that, that people respected. Uh, and then that gave way to scratching. When scratching arises in the in the late 1980s, that becomes a new level of how to demonstrate sort of your acumen on the turntables. And so the scene itself sees kind of these changing standards, basically, for what they respect from one another, mm-hmm. uh, what becomes seen as, as being the mark of being a good DJ. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, I mean, I, you know, as I think about it, I find it so interesting that... Um, you know, DJs. We we traditionally associated DJ with hip hop, but certainly electronic music. You know, exists through DJs and yeah. you know, and there's a soul and funk tradition. And even within what you're talking about, right? Like these these kids were not always playing hip hop; they were playing freestyle right. and you know whatever was the music right. that would move the crowd, right? right. And and then there's uh, the party DJs and the performance DJs and the competition DJs. And, you know, now I think there's a sort of debate, uh, certainly in the dance music world, but even in hip hop, to some extent of sort of what constitutes a real DJ. Um, You know, if you're using too much technology, right? Right. Yeah, yeah, sure. If, you know, there are, there are some guys uh, we've talked about on this show who, uh, whose equipment isn't actually plugged in when they're on stage. <laughs> and, they're you know, it's just all for show. It's all, right. Right, the right, right. And, you know, I don't want to debate the real, not real thing. Yeah. Because there's no answer to that. Right. Um,
2: it's as real as the audience is willing to make it yeah. real.
0: But that's what right. I was going to say is, like, what what's consistent through all of that is that the crowd loves it. And, you know, every... Every successful DJ, obviously, by definition, has found a way to make whatever he does, whether it's dancing while there's music right. playing, mm-hmm. work for the people that are watching him do it. And I, th- I, I believe there's something to that, that collective experience that we want to have, that we want someone to lead us through. right?
2: I mean, the thing that I think I make this analogy in the book is that a DJ may be in power, but only to the extent that the audience gives them that power. So right. the, what the, what the audience and the crowd on the dance floor is doing is basically saying, I'm going to let you take me through this journey. But if at the point which I don't like it, right. I'm going to leave the dance floor and I'm going to ruin your night. And yeah. so <laughs> as much as we think of the DJs being in control, again, that control is, it's, it's given to them. It's, they're allowed mm-hmm. to sort of pilot the ship so long as the the crowd is with them and i think i mean i think this raises an interesting philosophical point which is can you be a good dj if audiences don't like you and you could be the most highly technically skilled dj on the planet but if no one wants to listen to you or dance to what you're playing i think it raises an interesting question as to what does that mean you're very good at all um and you know and this is not to create like a false binary between like it's all about crowd pleasing versus it's all about your skills. But at the end of the day, DJs are not solitary. Their craft is completely dependent on an audience being receptive to it in a way that I think is different than like other parts of art. You could be, you know, you could be a painter who uh, maybe a lot of people don't get your art. That doesn't mean that you're not really a good artist necessarily, but with a DJ that, symbiotic relationship to the audience you can't really remove that a dj by themselves is i mean yeah they're still djing but it's the audience that sort of gives their identity as a dj any kind of real meaning to me Mm -hmm.
0: yeah so talking about success you you talk a little bit about this idea of psychic capital yeah can you explain that for me yeah
2: i mean you know these guys as and, and I keep saying "guys" partly as shorthand, but it's also because it was predominantly, uh, you know, a male scene, as, yeah. as the DJ scene tends to be. And there are reasons for that, which we can get into. But for for the, the the members of the mobile scene, they certainly were able to make some actual money off of this. But most of that money got instantly reinvested into buying new records or upgrading equipment. Like, you no one got interested in, in mobile DJing because they thought they were going to, you know, pay their bills off of it. It was really the the the, the, the Actual income was pretty secondary. The psychic income is just another way of saying that partly what you get out of it is this, you know, social status. It's fame, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. It's popularity. Right. Um, you know, the the, the people and again. These are high school students, right? So they're comparing being a, a star DJ to being like the star quarterback. And so we we you know we understand thanks you know to a thousand like high school movies. Like what are the hi, what is the hierarchy of fame within a high school social environment? And for these. Um, again, mostly young men, DJing was a way for them to kind of rise up that hierarchy in a way that wasn't dependent on, you know, being class president or being the quarterback, but they could be sort of like the hot DJ on campus. And this was a way for them to have, to be able to build a reputation among themselves, among their friends. Um, if there were men among girls, that was a big part of it too. So that psychic income that I'm talking about is just another way of saying it's part of, and, and this was a quote from Corman Roke, who was one of the members of, of Spintronics at a Daily City. For him, psychic income just meant that he didn't have to get paid in physical dollars. He was getting paid in like in rep. He was getting mm-hmm. paid in props, right. to use a hip hop term, if you will. Yeah. yeah,
0: Yeah, it's funny. I mean, you know, that feels right. Um, you know, if you open any magazine newspaper website about the music business today. Like the business has sort of dominated the conversation and it's all about how much artists can make or right, right. can't make. Right. And uh that's not to say people should just, you know, not worry about the finances and make music for for the props. Yeah. But but it does seem like some of that's gotten lost in the in the discourse about music today.
2: What, the i the, the psychic income quality of it? Yeah. I mean, I think the thing you got to keep in mind: none of these, none of these DJs that I write about were thinking that they were going to become professional DJs. Sure. They were doing it as something that it seemed like it was fun, and they took it very seriously. But it wasn't right. like their ambition was, "Yeah, I want to grow up to be, a, you know, a professional DJ." And of course, you know, a, a handful of them that is what they ended up doing. But the vast majority of for for the vast majority of them, it was just something to do on the side because they were, could be with their friends, and mm-hmm. you know, it was it was fun. Um, and I think that to the extent that psychic income has power, it's, you know, when you try to translate, okay, so how, how do I turn that psychic income and how do I make it into actual income? Therein sort of lies a trick to a lot of things that begin as hobbies that we might want to pursue as professions or careers that may not be as easy to, to make that transition. Um, and uh, you know I do think that there there is a fascination that people in the media have with how much DJs get paid and I think partially it's based around this devaluation of the idea that DJ should get paid much of anything. Like right. people can't believe that Tiesto yeah. gets paid whatever the fuck he gets paid. But we don't have that same conversation about Beyonce right. or about right. you know, or about the the CEO of like of, of a company because sure. we presume, well, yeah, they should be highly compensated because that fits into our narrow worldview of of how people get paid. But like the idea that a DJ should be making, you know, ten million dollars a year, like that doesn't make sense to me. Well, yeah, but if you look if, if you look at the bare basics, like how much they, much money do they make for other people? Right. Yeah, then it's like yeah, that that income actually does make sense. Mm-hmm. I think people just see DJing as being frivolous and therefore not worthy of compensation. Mm. Right. Um, and that you know that's that's ignorance. Right. You know
1: exactly. I was just going to say, are the people that are saying that are people who have never been to a show and seen a DJ do what he does? Right.
2: Or or who just don't understand like the the, the amount of money that's being generated right, by right. people going to clubs and. In Vegas, or you know, wherever you are, um, you know, DJing, and I don't know if this is partly what Josh is getting at too. I mean, I do. There's any number of miscontents that that are malcontents that come up, or discontents, sorry, okay. discontents that come up in the idea of DJing as big business, right? There's a lot of just debate yeah there's, there's a lot of things that it makes people uncomfortable thinking and talking about that but i think this this to go back to my previous point this fixation we have and how much do djs get paid again a lot of that comes out of the fact that a lot, there's a certain segment of people just assume that djs shouldn't get paid much of anything because mm-hmm. all you're doing is just playing records man i could do that <laughs> right. well if you could do what sure. a lot of these people were doing it why aren't you out there doing it right. and i'm kind of feeling like yeah there's probably a little bit more to it than just playing records you know absolutely yeah
0: yeah i mean i think for me um <clears throat> you know, I, I have some amount of anxiety about uh, any cultural endeavor as big business, sure, because you know you talk about you know this uh, you know the mobile scene becoming you know sort of sort of happening in this in this vacuum right where it's allowed to grow sort because, of allowed,
2: I, yeah because there's not that much money
0: in, you know right and yeah. there's not that much scrutiny. Right. Right. And I think, you know, you referenced some other, uh, you know, the the British punk scene and the, you know, the rave scene and, uh, you know, certainly the New York hip hop scene. Like these things happen kind of in quiet, small communities that become bigger communities that then, you know, turn into businesses. Right. And I have some feeling that that's necessary for for these kind of movements to develop. And that you know, as the internet unearths more of everything that's happening on the planet at any given time, that that's a that's going to become a greater challenge for this sort of cultural evolution to happen.
2: Because things don't have enough time to evolve on their own before they're sort of "quote unquote" discovered. Is that mm-hmm. what you're suggesting? Yeah.
0: Um, and and part of it is the the um, attachment. There's there's a certain Kind of person who wants to b- discover the next the big thing,
2: right? Yeah, I mean, that's that's a I think the core kind of contradiction. Sure, I mean I, I think one of the, gr- the one of the great. Transformations of how we think about popular culture, especially over the 20th century, let alone into the 21st, is that, you know, it wasn't really that long ago, probably our parents' or grandparents' generation, in which pop culture was really just completely dismissed as fluff and as being unimportant and as being trash, trash culture. So it didn't, you know, it didn't live up to the kind of um, import that we put on classical music or on theater or literature, all these things. And what we've seen is that over the course of the last, you know, probably since rock and roll, that that pop culture now exists sort of on somewhat of an equal playing field with everything else out there. On the one side, as someone who loves pop culture, it kind of feels like, well, we won finally in terms of people take this stuff seriously because it should be taken seriously. But on the flip side, I think what comes with that is this idea that partly what propelled pop culture up that chain of importance is this idea that Anything can be monetized, right? And that what people are when when people are looking for the next big thing, what they're looking for is something that has been monetized yet, so mm-hmm. they can be an early investor on that and they can therefore get paid off of it. I mean, this is sort of how capitalism works, right? You find you you buy low and you sell high, and I think mm-hmm. pop culture has become a really attractive uh, realm for people to try to you know dig through and find stuff that they can invest in as a way of not necessarily helping the culture or whatever it is we're talking about succeed, the phenomena or community succeed, but rather how can I make a quick buck off of it? And that, that, that driving force is both what helps pop cultures, certain communities succeed, but it's also the very danger that lies in that success. So, you know, The reason why the mobile scene, I think, never mapped onto other people's consciousness was partially because they never made the transition, unlike hip hop, unlike house music or techno music. They didn't make the transition from playing records to making records, and there's Mm -hmm. a lot of reasons for that. Mm -hmm. But if that mobile scene had been able to make that jump successfully, like, Again, hip hop's being a, is a great example because by 1979, hip hop culture—what we think of hip hop culture in New York City—was on the wane. You, you know, six months, twelve months later, that thing would have been dead. It would have just been a nice memory of a local party culture that no one else cared about. Yeah. But rappers of the light changed everything. Now, you could argue that was a great thing for hip-hop because it gave it a new life. It it kind of opened the door for how we think of hip-hop today. But it also irrevocably changed hip-hop from being a very local, live performance. You experience it in the moment culture to something that could now be commodified Mm -hmm. and would make people billions Mm -hmm. of dollars. Is that a net win for hip-hop? Is that a net loss for hip-hop? You know, I don't know. I think one could argue both ways. And I think that 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 same contradiction confronts Every piece of, of culture that we hold dear to ourselves, that tension is never far away because capitalism, it, you know, it, it eats itself and the things that we love can be easily corrupted and perverted for the same reasons that we got to know it to begin with.
0: That's a really uplifting message. (laughs) I mean, I. but... No, no, you're right.
2: Well, I think the trick is, and I think what keeps us engaged is we're always hoping that the thing that we love stays one step ahead of it, right? And that it always manages to be just outside of that grasp and the the jaws of capital. But to me, at the same time, again, I grew up in the West Coast, right? I wouldn't know about hip hop if not for the commodification of hip hop. And hip hop changed my life. Of course. So... Do I, am I resentful for that? I, it's kind of hard to be, but on the but I, I can still say that that transformation into a commodity also creates problems along the way, and I don't know how to resolve that. As someone who studies pop culture and as a you know as someone who loves pop culture and is engaged in it, I'm always aware that that contradiction is always there because again the relationship between pop culture and capitalism—you don't get pop culture without capitalism. Otherwise, we'd all be living through folk culture, and that's a very different experience.
0: Right. Uh okay, favorite DJ. Um
2: I mean my first impulse is well, what what kind of DJ are we talking about? Um Tell us about the, the... I mean the, the DJ who made me want to become a DJ,
0: Benny B. Did you hmm. know Benny up in the bay? Yeah, not only do I know Benny from from uh A B B but my grandmother lived off of uh Adams. Yeah. Directly across the street from Benny's family okay, and so we played together at like four or five years That's old. crazy. Yeah, I was friends with his older brother cuz I'm a little wild. bit older than him. okay Okay, but uh, but he would be out there like and, and me and his brother Byron
2: yeah, so yeah, Benny B Ben Nickelberry um, I mean he's probably best known for running the, um, the independent uh, Barry hip-hop label ABB records um, but he also was and still is a, a record collector and a DJ, and he used to do a show on KALX, which is the um, college radio station for UC Berkeley, which is how I first started DJing, by being a ra- by working at the radio station. And I just have this really distinct memory of Benny would bring down his own tables, and he had one of those old wood-paneled mixtures. I can't remember if it was a realistic mixer, or maybe it was like the, the Jazzy Jeff special that... Um, Who put out all those cheap mixers back in the days? That wasn't realistic, but everyone had one.
0: Like Tascam? No,
2: no, man. Oh, like they had, they had, like you know, they were in the back of the source. Gemini, Gemini, right? It was like the wood panel Gemini mixer.
0: Remember those, Mark? And he would, he would
2: bring those down to the radio, to the radio uh, studio, and would be cutting up doubles on it. And he just looked like he was having so much fun that when I saw him do that, I just felt like, man. I want to do that too, and that's. I think I really, I still to this day credit him with being at least that initial inspiration about seeing some, seeing another DJ, you know, performing the craft and and wanting to be to do it as well. So, um, you know, whether he's my favorite DJ or not, he certainly was. You know, this gateway into why I wanted to become it. Um, You know, I think one of the best party rockers I know would be someone like a J Rock of the Beat Junkies or or Shortcut. Uh, who I actually got to you know, DJ. Uh, we had a mutual friend's wedding in Shanghai that we both went out there to DJ. That was really fun. DJ makes nice. the short, and just seeing him do, you know, how he works it up close. Like he is so good. It, I mean, it's just seamless, and it, he makes it seem effortless. Even though I know there is a ton of training that goes into being him be able to execute like that. Mm-hmm. But I love DJs who are able to work with multiple genres and still make it seem like. It all makes sense Mm -hmm. together, and I think for me, I did. I tend to get stuck in ruts where, you know, over the course of an evening, I'll do like a hip hop set, and then I'll do a funk set, I'll do a Latin set, and I'm I'm sort of more tedious, uh, uh, no, not tedious. I'm more timid about kind of uh, mixing it up and going from, let's say, you know, dance hall track to like you know a Latin track to whatever, Mm -hmm. and. And sure does. He just he'll he'll move every every song will be something different, but it all makes sense together. And yeah. I think I really admire sort of DJs who who have just a command of musical knowledge to know how these things will fit together. Um, so yeah, I mean, those are the ones who sort of immediately come to mind.
0: What about a, a performance that stands out to you? I I mean
2: I think. This was 1994. It was the West Coast Regional DMC Championships that were held at Club DV8 in San Francisco. And I saw a shortcut do the Impeach the President juggle. Yeah, And I'd never seen a juggle done before. And that blew my fucking mind. Like, I mean, I, I could figure out what it was he was exactly doing, but I didn't even realize that this is something that one could do, which is to reconstruct an entirely new drum beat from two different drum beats. Um, that just stays with me forever, just because it was just sort of opening my eyes to just a, a level of, of technical and stylistic possibilities that I just didn't know existed. Um, and uh, yeah, that, that certainly stuck with me.
1: He's guilty Some people say I don't know I don't know Some people say Give him a chance
0: So I'm almost positive I was a judge at that. You probably were. Yeah. So it was uh, Crazy Legs. If it was, a re- if I have the year right, uh, so I definitely judged when I was at Herb. Okay, I went up there and I judged okay. the DMC at DVA. Yeah, and I remember um,
2: Shortcut One. Yeah he won that year so yeah, yeah 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 and it was I don't and know if you went it was also the same weekend as the Roots first performance in San Francisco I didn't see that okay which is the other reason why I remember that yeah, weekend yeah, I because I saw them that blew my mind I went to see Shortcut at the DMC championship uh, or the regional championship and I, that also completely floored me
0: no I think that was the show because there was some discussion about Legs was like well Short's sure, a rock steady DJ I don't know if I should be voting for oh, him right 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 the, the officials are like don't worry about it um, so anyway, I was there. Yeah. That's crazy. That's funny. Yeah. Small,
2: I mean, it's a small world. The West Coast I, I, in, I, I in that area, especially West in the Bay Area, man. You just felt like yeah. it was it was a fishbowl, but it was an amazing fishbowl, you know, yeah. and that everything just seemed to be centered there. Yeah. Um, you know, so that stands out. I'm trying to think of a more recent experience if that was of super memorable. And the thing is, I mean, even back then, and especially now, I just don't go out that that much. I think partly as a hip hop fan, you're so used to hip hop shows sucking because the sounds bad, because the performers. And I think things have gotten much better. I think people have gotten better. Like I think I saw Kanye in concert, and I realized, oh, rappers have gotten so much better at like live shows. Yeah, but Kanye Kanye is right, right? But which
1: probably should be how they do it. But as
2: a '90s kid, it's like hip hop shows were not fun to go to. Like it just didn't sound very good, Mm -hmm. and so. I just didn't get used to like going to shows a lot, so I'm trying to think of you know when's the most recent time I went out and was like, man, that's really good. Um, I mean, certainly you were, you mentioned Newmark earlier. You know, he did a show at um, Grand Performances in downtown LA, and he had yeah his whole setup, his whole setup, his, his yeah, whole yeah. setup. I and I just yeah I've always loved how Amazing. imaginative and creative Newmark and the sense of play, like you know, DJing. Certainly, there are a lot of DJs who take their craft very seriously. But that shouldn't get in the way of there being just a sense of like, of play involved with mm-hmm. it. And I think Newmark, as much as any DJ, is just such an expert at, at working that in, in a way mm-hmm. that it's not, it's not gimmicky. I mean, he's just finding ways of, of incorporating other sounds and styles into a set. Uh, and I appreciate the level of care and fun that goes into sort of his thinking with that. Um, and yeah, so that was last summer. And that was probably one of the last times I went to go, went to go see a DJ, specifically to see them DJ.
0: Yeah.
1: Um I know we're not allowed to ask you questions, but how come you why, get to pick what DJ what DJs are good? Like back then, what was like oh, so how I did that We don't know anything about Josh. Apparently we find out all these <laughs> things about him in his past cuz he doesn't really talk about himself that much. But
0: So I was an editor at Herb magazine, which was a magazine covering DJ culture and uh and they asked I, I was probably in San Francisco already, so it was easy for the travel, but they asked uh us to have someone come participate as a judge was that fun yeah it was great i mean I, you know first of all i got to spend a day with crazy legs <laughs> and uh, a couple other guys who i'm not forgetting who were you know inspirations to me and you know and you know, a so day awesome. spent listening to djs and watching yeah. them you know do their craft
1: yeah but you're judging them that's like day. totally crazy that's awesome
2: I
0: think pam the Funkstress might have been on that she was yeah, yeah.
2: she was and she yeah, yeah. she did her mix. she, she took we, her bra right 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 and, and as well her as her shirt as cutting it up with her breasts that yeah, was for yeah, yeah. that was one of one of the things that she did bad that's bad. right but yeah that's right yeah. same that was the same show yeah absolutely. That was
1: fun.
0: <laughs> so no it's great you know you're judging them but you're not look they were all good they all made it right, right, right. to a certain point you know but did you have like favoritism
1: because you'd like love certain djs over others
0: I was, I remember being conscious of that at the time that, that, you know, I mean, shortcut clearly to me, hadn't, he was better, Mm. but I did wonder, like, do I think he's better because I already think Rocksteady's better. And, you know, you know, I knew Apollo and, and we weren't friends, but I'd interviewed them for the magazine. Right. So I had this preconceived back to my earlier point about, we don't necessarily know what's good. Right. Right. We tell ourselves what's good.
2: I mean, I think of that of that year because you know Short would go on to represent the West Coast Regional and he lost to Rock Raider in the in the national championships. Mm-hmm. And there was there was I mean there's always controversies around any kind of contest, but in particular I think people and rest in peace to Rock Raider is they felt like Raider's Set was much more body trick focused and and, right. and Short had more creative kind of skills. And I think back to. <coughs> this key battle i write about in the book which was probably 1989 or 1990 between a very a, a young Kubert before he sort of had kind of na- you know national fame and this guy um, Jazzy Jim who was a dj out of the south bay and it was a contest in which they were the finalists and jazzy jim was a really skilled quick quick mixer and Kubert was coming with scratches and the judges really didn't know what to do because mm-hmm. th- it was like comparing apples and oranges right. they were completely two different schools of thought really Jazzy ended up winning the night, but as we know historically, you know, Cubert won the war over the long term in terms of scratching, became much more dominant. But it's sort of like, what do you do with two completely different set of standards? You know, I'm not going to say that Rock Raider didn't deserve to win, but to me knowing what Raider's routine was, and I eventually did see Raider's routine, and knowing what Short could do, to me where, where I lean, I think Short was the better DJ, because it wasn't just dependent on like these acrobatic tricks, which are nice, but what he was doing in terms of like transforming what you could do with a set of records, to me, that was a bigger innovation. But again, obviously people disagreed at at that particular DMC, and and Rada came away the champion. And I I don't begrudge him for that. These standards are always going to be, these debate-around standards are implicit to any kind of artistic practice. Mm -hmm.
1: How's music uh, playing a role in your household? That's a
2: great question. I mean, it, I, I mean, I think partly, parenthood is like an amazing exercise in in solipsism and narcissism because you just assume that everything your kid does is somehow a reflection of you. Yeah, of course. When really, it's them, them. It's just them being themselves, really, right? But I do love watching the ways in which my my daughter engages with music, and I think when certainly when um, she was younger one of the primary ways in which she listened to any music is whatever I played in the car. And so right. she actually would know yeah. the choruses to like a lot of kind of semi obscure sixties soul songs just because I would play them all the that's time awesome. in the car. Yeah. And I, I love that, that aspect that of it now that she's getting older and now that she has access to YouTube, she's coming into more of her own musical awareness to some extent. Again, we were talking about pitch perfect before. I mean, that's sort of one example of it. Um, you know, it, it is funny cause she came downstairs and she declared, you know, I want to memorize more raps and I'm thinking, okay, nice. I can help you with that. Yeah. Maybe first start by not referring to them as raps. But, but, but so sure, funny. if you want to, if you want to listen to stuff, let me, you know. And I think I put, I put like three feet high and rising on her i iP- her on her uh, her iPhone to listen to. I don't think she actually has listened to it. And that's was part of my conceit. Like I want her to be exposed to the stuff that was important to me. Mm-hmm. Right. Though she probably would be just as happy to listen to like Iggy Azalea's new album, which makes me want to kill myself. But oh that's my fine. God, yeah. But that's fine totally. because again, it's not for me to <laughs> plan her course. She's going to come to music on her own and in her own way. So, um I think I've I've created a compromise will where I will still play the stuff that I want to listen to, but if I know there's songs that she likes, I'll add that into sort of the car playlist so that she but can hear the music. But you don't like rule it likes. off
1: the table like we cannot play Iggy Azalea whatsoever.
2: Uh I mean, there are some things where I just don't want to listen to it. Yeah. But right. for for a minute, I didn't That's have a problem I with I didn't have a problem with fancy. Like, I'm okay with fancy, <laughs> right. you know? At least the first verse, <laughs> and then I kind of get tired of listening to her about halfway through. <laughs> right. um, but for the most part, the things that my daughter wants to listen to, I don't have a big problem wanting to listen to them, too. Um, again, I tr- I think for me, as I get older, I definitely want to be open-minded in terms of what I listen to, and I don't want to be the same person I was when I was in my 20s, where I was really closed off to a lot of things because I was being young and stupid. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, I I sort of have told this story to other people, but there are certain albums where, because I didn't really get the concept, or I just was too fixated on wanting it to sound like the old stuff. Like, I didn't like Lowen Theory when Lowen Theory first came out. Because I wanted it to sound more like people's instinctive travels, which I love.
1: Kick it, yes you can. can I kick it? Yes you can I kick it? While I'm gone. On. Can I kick it? To all the people who can press like a tribe, cuz before this did you really know what I was? Comprehend to the track force, why cuz getting bitches on the tip.
2: I mean, this is, this is how ignorant I was. I'm like, why is it everything so bass heavy? Like I didn't get the <laughs> fact that low in theory referred to the bass. I thought uh-huh. they were talking about people's asses or whatever. Sure. And I just didn't get it. And of course now I, you know, low in theory is probably, if not the number my favorite tribe album, it's, yeah. you know, the close number two, but you know, I was just that kid who was like, if it doesn't sound the way that the first stuff sounds like I don't give a, f- I don't care about it. Like mm-hmm. I don't like Paul's boutique for the same reason. Mm-hmm. And of course a lot of people didn't like Paul's boutique for the same reason. Right. Um, as I get older, I just want to remind myself, don't be like who I was, be open to stuff. Right. Even stuff that you may not think you like, f- figure out what's interesting about it, and you don't have to love it, but at least be open to engaging with it. Right. And so, so
0: what's something that, give us an example.
1: Like something new, right?
2: Yeah, something you, you. I'm just trying to think of what, like, what's the most recent like kind of big quote unquote pop album. I mean, I like Taylor Swift's Shake It Off. I mean, it's basically Mickey, but I mean, okay. that's not a that's bad true. thing, I guess. Um, I don't know if I actually really try to sit with her album because she doesn't really need me to help her out in that respect and right. you know, I'll probably end up hearing her stuff regardless. Right. Um, so it's I mean, on the on the one hand, I don't go out of my way to be like a hardcore poptimist and only listen to everything that's out that's mm-hmm. big and popping. Right. But on the flip side, I don't tr- I don't like avoid that stuff just because it's big and popping either. Right. So I think
0: I'm still trying to get over that.
2: I yeah, do. I mean, I I channel I no surf when right. I when I drive. If I'm not listening to NPR, like I will spend a few moments listening to kind of like the pop stations yeah, just done. to see what's what's kind of rifling through there mm-hmm. and seeing if there's stuff that I might be open to. What do you think of what the current state? Yeah. Um, I mean, again, this goes back to my my point about kind of like odd future and like Tyler the Creator. A lot of, I mean pop music is generally made for people who are in their late teens or early twenties. Like that's yeah. the key demographic. It's always been like that. You know, when Elvis was making music, when the Beatles were making music, they were right. making music for young people. I am not a young person anymore. Artists are not making music that is meant to like, speak to me. That's fine. Mm-hmm. And if, if I don't feel connected to it, partly it's because that's not, I'm not the intended audience. Right. Um. So yeah, there's a lot of stuff that, that that's out there that I'm not like hugely crazy about. It doesn't, doesn't really speak to me, but that's because I'm in my 40s now and they're making music that's for like 17-year-olds. Right, right.
0: So are there any new guys that you check for? I mean, you, you talked about I mean, Kendrick, Kendrick right? certainly. Kendrick, yeah.
2: certainly. Um, you know, I liked, I really liked, um, speaking of Odd Future, you know, I really like Earl Sweatshirt's last album. Like his, I like Doris a lot. His more recent album, not quite as into, um, but that's fine. Um, I'm trying to think of, you know, the people that, I'll try to make a point to kind of check for And the the problem is that that list is so big, I can't have a hard time just kind of plucking a name out out of the ether. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, I'm trying to think of, you know, Janet Jackson's supposed to come back with a new album this year. We haven't heard from her in a minute. Like, I'll be curious to see what her stuff sounds like. I'll always give Beyonce a shake because so so many of the people I know Adore her on multiple levels Not just Mm. musically But socially and culturally And politically So yeah I'll just give it a listen Just to see what it's like Mm -hmm. Um, You know I used to be someone Who always listened To a new Jay-Z project I am steadily getting away From that Because he's been so disappointing Over the last few But Kanye I'll still check for it Because I think Whether I love his stuff or not I think he's an interesting artist. Yeah, in yeah, he pushes he, you know, he pushes. he pushes. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah, I don't, I don't totally like this. I don't have to like what he pushes with, right. but yeah. I'm, yeah. I'm, I'm intrigued can. by it.
1: Yeah, no, I, I think that's that's cool. Um, yeah, but his style, like he definitely pushes the boundary in style right. and it right. may not always work.
0: Yeah, I had the feeling when I when I listened to Yeezus that... Like, Yeezus?
1: Is that what he goes by? Well, well that,
0: that was, was the album. No, oh, no, the album. right. Um, that like, it's not a great record right now, but in 20 years, he's going to be really glad he made this record. Yeah. And I, I mean uh, yeah. Like yeah, like I, right like as part of his catalog. Yeah. Like that's right. it's an interesting evolution and, and he pushes the boundaries. But you know, I think you know, Kanye's an artist, Jay Z's a businessman. Right? I mean they we that's my perspective. oh sure perspective. I mean maybe, they're, they're well, both was, both. Right? But they, they of course they they, they, they
2: strategize maybe a little bit differently. Mm-hmm. Like Yeezus yeah. was not a record that was designed to like king the market, sure. No. In a way that I think mm-hmm. blueprint Blue, blah, Blueprint yeah, yeah. 3 was much more designed like how yeah. can I hit these key marks mm-hmm. um, I mean there are artists that I feel like I maybe should be listening more because when I hear random songs I'm like oh wait that's actually not bad like Jesse J, who I know very little about but I'm like there's a few Jesse J songs I'm like, I actually am not mad at this I haven't really bothered to go to listen to her catalog, but maybe, who knows, I'll, I'll she's surprise got a great myself. Voice. No, mm. yeah, she's got a really great voice. Um,
1: I wish Josh would listen to some pop stuff. I'm like dying. When he went to the Bruno Mars concert a couple, maybe it's been a little over a year, I was so excited for him. I was like, welcome, <coughs> this is awesome. Yeah. You're gonna go yeah, see yeah, Bruno I, Mars, I he's so that. talented, because, you know, you're right, it's definitely. I like some
2: Bruno stuff, but at this wedding I was at, I got a request to play Uptown Funk, which <laughs> I never really listened to, outside of like five oh, seconds. So Okay. The background. That, that song's hot garbage it's terrible and this is I not nothing it. against Bruno but that's I, I was listening it's to it's the it's just so fucking why derivative it yeah. it's like I don't know because you don't know the original songs that oh, they ripped off oh I see maybe I don't know but I just like my, I, it's like I can't believe I, well it's not that I couldn't believe people liked it like it made sense to me why this song's a hit but to me, it's like, oh my God, this is just ripping off four yeah. different songs. I, right. I, like, this is such garbage to me. And again, it's yeah. nothing against Bruno because there's other Bruno Mars stuff I like. But like, no, Uptown Funk just offended me.
0: It's been a while since but I've been offended by a song, but that song fucking offended me. It offended me too. And, but, but to some extent, Bruno just offends me. Like, I, you know, I mean, he's talented. I'm not, that's not to take that away from him. And I agree with you. There are some things I like. But I also think that uh, he's a knockoff artist. The, the first Which time I saw him, he's been accused of that sure well sure yeah. right like so there's there's in Uptown Funk that's obvious yeah. with uh, uh, Treasure right there's a whole story about um, Breakbot. Breakbot thank you there's French House Guy I right? Right. Breakbot right, um, whose song he kind of ripped off uh, Baby I'm Yours is that it? I
1: thought I had it all together but I was letting Day you walk away, you were the clock that was ticking in my heart. Changed my state of mind, but love so hard. My- Just an evolution, like it's... And then, but the first
0: time I saw him, before all that, my wife is a huge Bruno fan, which is how I keep ending up. I've seen him perform three times, which is not... (laughs) But you're going to blame it on the wife. Okay. Gotcha. (laughs) Uh, So, but the first time, you know, I walked away thinking, this guy is like a, uh, he's a Michael Jackson impersonator who never heard Off the Wall or Thriller.
2: Or maybe he did. And like, he's just very good at like. No, I felt.
0: I, no, I just meant like he his, he his Michael Jackson experience started it bad. Oh, I mm-hmm. see what you're saying. So it missed oh, the best okay. parts of Michael Jackson. It. Got it. And then, but he, but, but that's how I've just always felt about Bruno. Mm. Um, again, like you said earlier, he doesn't need me to like him. He's right, doing right. fine. I but, feel like
1: we take away. I mean, he's a he's a. But he does it for the show, you know, and uh, like if the show works, I mean.
0: But you have something else that I think is interesting, which is, isn't all music, derivative yeah. of other music. So, yes, let's I put mean, that to, to you. some talk, ex- talk. I mean, talk sure, us through that.
2: to some extent, I think. But th- there's a diff- I, there's always this fine line. What what pushes music forward, I think, are the kind of incremental changes that nudge it in a different direction, as opposed to sort of really. In the case of something like Uptown Funk, I feel like it's just replicating a bunch of things that we already know, as opposed to I'm trying to think of an example of something that that kind of pushes things in a slightly different direction. Um, of course, nothing's coming to mind right now.
1: But could he be bringing it back? Because for like for you guys, that was the, maybe the music you were listening to back then. Those were the that's type what, of
0: that's what covers are for.
1: But for us, this is something new. I've well, never you, heard this stuff before. My parents didn't introduce it to me, so had I put have out an appreciation a
0: cover of the time that you never heard.
1: And he performs it amazing. Then, then how's that would not ripping it, off? As
0: if it was new, and you know, to me that would be. Maybe just, not interesting, but it'd be less offensive.
1: I just feel like it's it's not fair because he's like, he's 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 bringing a lot of smile and joy and jumping jacks to a room and like, you know, he's an entertainer. He's a performer. I mean, that's what he's really good at. So why take that away from him just because... Well, well
0: we're not we're, taking it away from him. Okay. He's entitled to that and he gets all the riches and spoils you, of that. You can be an entertainer and be kind of unoriginal. Yeah. Those are not mutually right.
2: exclusive categories. You and, know?
0: and there's going to be guys like us that don't like it so fair enough but he makes his crowd happy right and that's kind of what we were talking about earlier right, right. like the, the crowd loves it
1: mm-hmm. you know that's
0: to some extent that's all that matters now we're just not part of that crowd right i would also say that you know
2: that what's what's that nas phrase right no idea is original right and if you the history of pop music is a history of repetition and of redundancies and of of, of copying in in, mm-hmm. in different ways but yet we know because we can listen to it that Pop music also evolves over time so clearly there's some introduction of novelty that's happening within. and i think you know partly what we like about music is the idea whether it's true or not and you could have a musicologist sit down and break down no actually it sounds exactly like this other thing right. but as long as we feel like we're getting something different right yeah you know this is what the german philosopher adorno talks about as as, as kind of pseudo individualization that part of the trick that pop pop culture plays on us is it leads us to believe, and I kind of agree with him and I have disagree with him on Adorno on this, but it's this idea that what music does is, pop music gives us the idea that we are making choices about what we want to listen to and that we can choose the songs that are important to us even though those choices are always constrained by the market. So it's not like mm-hmm. it's, an, it's not like we're actually getting real choice. It's like, here's the 10 songs that you can pick from, pick one that you really like, right? But that said, I think so long as we feel like, no one... None of us probably would like a song that we thought was just a copy of something else. If you mm-hmm. thought Uptown Funk sounded exactly like a Justin Timberlake song, you probably wouldn't like ju- Uptown Funk. Mm-hmm. On some level, you think that you're getting something that you haven't heard before right. that's enjoyable. Mm-hmm. And as long as you think that, and we all fall for that illusion, even if, again, on a technical level, someone could say, well, it's actually really similar to this other thing. Right. As long as we believe it's original, right. that that's what makes it original. The right. perception is greater than the reality in that respect. Right. That's right. Um, you know, if I could just come kind of come back to like things that I, I feel like I should be listening to more, I mean, I feel like I really should be listening to more dance music. Mm. I I never got into house. I never got into techno because I identified as being a hip hop guy and being a hip hop guy Mm. and you weren't fucking with house and techno music. But I feel like I probably really cheated myself off of some really interesting musical experiences by not going more to like raves and to dances. You know, the fact that my kids are really into EDM and by my kids, I mean my students, you know, it makes me curious to see what is that experience like? What is that music like? Mm -hmm. Because I don't presume that I would dislike it. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, it's. I love music that's designed to make people dance. It's a big reason why I love Latin music. Mm-hmm. Latin music is highly dependent on a lot of repetition and using yeah. like the same kind of piano riffs that like everyone else uses or mm-hmm. whatnot. You know, but the goal is, how do you get people moving? And for that reason, if I have an appreciation for something like Latin boogaloo music, which I love, which is kind of a highly re- redundant derivative style, I should also be open to something like, you know, I, and I, I know EDM is a very poor term, but it's the right. one I understand. Yeah. Like I should be open to listening to that and, and understanding this is what people like about it. Even if I don't necessarily like mm-hmm. it, I should at least expose myself to it. Mm-hmm. Um, so I don't know. One of these days, maybe when I take my daughter to, oh my god, to like EDC or something, <laughs> I'll, I'll learn about it and then and be I'm never going to do this again. Right. Yeah. yeah, exactly. But we'll see. We'll see. That's, cool. that's not going to be right around the corner though.
0: That's right. Well on that note, we gotta shut it down. All right. Thanks for being here, man. I appreciate it. It's a huge pleasure.
2: we really fun talking to both of you.
0: (laughs) Absolutely. Hey, that was Oliver Wang. Was it any good? I don't know. I can't tell. Leave us a comment on Twitter at Rebel Radio Net or on SoundCloud, Rebel underscore radio. Or just call me at home and let me know what you thought of the show. If you didn't like it, just pretend you did and give us five stars on iTunes. It's all good. Nobody's going to know.